Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. As a culture, we're going to need to reckon with a, a lot more pain. War, genocide, famine, poverty. As the displacement of people from countries across the planet continues, the world's refugee crisis has become more severe than ever, and many of us are afraid of what this means for our own countries. We wait impatiently for our borders to open up so we can go on holiday, go travelling, free ourselves of the fear of being trapped forever. But why have we become so disconnected from the plight of the other that we can't see the similarities between their situation and ours? Why do we fear migration and yet long to travel the world. We forget too easily that the history of the world is a history of travel, of cultures connecting, finding common ground, waging wars, and hopefully finding peace again. It's strange to think that in a world where we can connect with people thousands of miles away in an instant, that we can also remain so insular. My guest today is Felix Marquard, and in his latest book, The New Nomads, he argues that we've lost the plot when it comes to migration, that when we think of migration, we think of largely unwanted immigration and its ills. Well, Felix is here to turn that perception on its head, and he's extremely well qualified to do so. Born in Paris, now living in Greece, his family tree is made up of at least 10 different nationalities. In 2012, he launched the Barret Vu movement in France, encouraging French youths to get out and travel the world. The list of his accomplishments goes on. But let's begin. Chapter 1. A Small Fish Felix's words in The New Nomads took me back to books I'd read years ago, particularly to Bill Bryson's Notes from a Small Island, where he talks about his first foray into travelling round Great Britain. One moment in his writing really stuck with me. To paraphrase, Bryson says, I could spend the rest of my life arriving in a new city at five o'clock in the afternoon. That, to me, speaks to the power, beauty and joy of travel, of arriving somewhere you've never been before, of the skills that you acquire as a traveller in a foreign land. Travel is education. One of the epigrams in the book is uh, from The Journey to the End of the Night by Louis Ferdinand Céline, where he says, you know, when you first arrive in a city, and I'm paraphrasing too, when you first arrive in a city, everyone's lovely and everything's wonderful and you just want to... You just want to hug everyone, really. And I, I certainly can relate to that, that feeling. I think you talk about education and uh, what happens really when we leave home, we shrink and everything takes on a much bigger, everything becomes bigger. And as a result, our internal conversation becomes much richer. Um, but we're also not caught up in the noise that usually takes so much space in our lives. One of the great gifts that I have today from living in a place where I don't speak the language is I don't have to listen to, it's allowed me, sorry, to free myself from conversations and, and, and discussions and, and uh, noise that I wasn't interested in. And I can focus on the things that really allow me to grow. You know, it's funny because in recent, in our culture now, it's sort of, it, it appears to be this new thing that a good education includes travel. 
you know, like we have these exchange programs and to be honest, these are for mostly for, I mean, it's, it's for the privileged, uh, hopefully it's, a, it's opening up, but it is, it, it is something that's considered new and for the privileged. And if you look back, it appears to be quite novel. Even if you look historically, traveling around Europe as a means of education is a project from the Renaissance, really. In Britain and France and places like that, it, it became a thing in the 19th century, really. But the truth is that education and travel have been intimately connected in cultures all around the Mediterranean for several mi millennia. The idea that you could get an education without traveling for the Greeks, for the Egyptians, for the um, Carthaginians, for the, for the uh, Phoenicians, it's completely unheard of. There is no such thing as education really without travel. Now it doesn't have to, it has, it doesn't have to be sort of travel around the world. It's almost as if you, you cannot learn without walking, truly, you know. I did the majority of my traveling via literature when I was younger. I was born in the Northwest of England. There's a notion, isn't there, in the book of being from somewhere or of being of somewhere, and that, that really does resonate with me. And the one thing it made me think of recently was the dichotomy between us as wannabe wanderlusts traveling the world versus the situation we found ourselves in over the last 18 months or so of being locked down. Even the word lockdown has a narrative to it, doesn't it? You know, our homes have become prisons. It's fascinating that when we are robbed of the ability to travel, we immediately see that as the imposition of some form of oppression. It's bizarre, isn't it? It is a form of oppression. Thank God, uh, nomadism does not have to be only geographic. Thank God we can, you just spoke about traveling through through reading. And I, I you know, that I think that's how many of us start out, you know, in a way. And um, traveling can also be about really speaking to someone who doesn't live very far from you, but whose context you're not very familiar with. You know, it's engaging with the other with a big O. But it's also, you know, professional nomadism. More and more young people these days, they know very well that their, their jobs are going to change many times in the course of their lifetimes. Social nomadism is a thing, you know, the, the capacity to sort of navigate between different sociologies, different universes, di different kinds of people. So thank God uh, there are other ways that we can continue to wander even in lockdown. And I've had a very rich experience of travel in lockdown because I, I connect with people on a daily basis in the United States, in Latin America, in Africa, in, in Asia because I've been to those places, but also because I'm animated by the same needs as, as some of these people that I connect with on a daily basis, among others, because I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an addict in recovery and I need other addicts from around the world to, to stay sober and clean. Uh, and so this has been a big, a big part of the pandemic for me has been traveling via Zoom. And many people, you know, these days, if you talk, talk to them about Zoom or just anything virtual, they're just sick and tired of it. And I understand that very well. 
you know, of course, there's many things that don't happen via screen, but it is a case of uh, the glass being half empty and half full because I don't think I would have made it through the pandemic if it weren't for Zoom. <laughs> you know, <laughs> We're often asking these days technology to, to fix things and to, um, to solve our problems. And it can solve some, but it can't entirely change our toxic behavior. So when it does allow us to do things like communicate relatively seamlessly with people on the other side of the planet, I think it's, it's worth remembering we're very lucky. Chapter two, a box of our making. In The New Nomads, Abdi really stood out to me. His journey epitomizes our selfish urge to center all narratives around ourselves. Abdi grew up in Mali in West Africa, but his life's journey, his successes, took him from rural and humble beginnings to the World Economic Forum's Davos, a success celebrated by those at Davos as a self-congratulatory pat on the back. But for Abdi... Where his journey has taken him pales in comparison with where he came from, where he comes from. The long walks with his father that really forged the man he is today. But to the people of Davos, none of that mattered. They wanted to put Abdi into a box of their own design. The people in Davos assumed that the most amazing thing about Abdi's trajectory was that he had gone from a rural part of sub-Saharan Africa to them. It was all about them. It's like the finish line of your journey. The most amazing thing about your story is that you're here with us. And he knew better. He just knew better. And it was fascinating to watch him because he, he saw, I mean, he saw really several things and it took me a while to, to get him to really unpack all this. But the first thing he saw is that what he had learned from those foundational walks with his dad, who took him from his home to the family farm in the middle of the in the middle of the forest every day for years, from the age of three until the age of eight, what he learned on those journeys was the most important things that he for in his life. You know, there was no question about it. Like that's where he became who he is. And that set him on a course that would make every other journey in his life more possible and more interesting. But the other thing that he saw was the self-congratulatory nature of the response to his being in Davos. You know, it, it was, wow, you know, if you can, if you just travel and you work hard and you're not an idiot, you can go to Stanford and then you can be like us. And what young people of Abdi's generation and even more so people who are younger than Abdi, because as far as my son is concerned, Abdi and I are both in the beginning to be an old fart category. For the younger people, this idea, you know, this very modern idea, this unified narrative that basically the best thing that can happen to a human being is to go from rurality 
to living in the big city and having a big job in a big company, I mean, that's just completely falling apart. And thank, you know, I think it's one of the wonderful virtues of this very violent period of, of uh, you know, the pandemic, which in many ways has been, is leading to incredible suffering and, uh, and despair. But there is also, as in all crises, there's a window of opportunity in this pandemic. And it is, it comes from the fact that, you know, this, this story that we've been telling ourselves and that global elites have completely bought into that, you know, things are getting better for everyone. If only we just followed the, the lessons of the enlightenment and, and all went in that one direction. That narrative is crumbling. It just doesn't work. You know, we, the, the world has been run for a long time now by people who considered that they understood fundamentally what was good and what was awful in the world because they were born right after World War II. And they were born mostly in Western Europe and, and in uh, North America. Those are the most influential people in the world. Uh, if you look at, you know, today and to this day. And their their software, because this the, sort of, it all comes from, we, we were born just after or during the Holocaust. So we know what the most awful thing that humans can do is. And we know what the best thing that humans can do is. And young people are saying, but... What, what about the 20 million people that died in the DRC in the past 20 years without anyone lifting a finger? How, how, do, you, how do you compute that? How, how can you pretend that this narrative works? It doesn't work. It's a, it's a picture of a certain thing at a certain moment in time, and it's, it, it's, not, um, it's not credible. So for Abdi, this idea that the horror of the Holocaust should be the single, the, the only way to understand what is going on, what, what, what is right and what is wrong, is crazy. Chapter three, addicted to growth. There's a narrative that we've bought into as a Western society, summed up by Felix in the book, as the fire brigade run by pyromaniacs. Felix is a recovering addict and spent a large portion of his life in denial of his addictions. And although it's been seven years since his last drink or drug, his perspective on civilization's behavior has been eternally shifted. He sees addiction everywhere. This year, we've watched the world in turmoil, drowning in floods, setting itself ablaze. We've gasped at the latest findings of the IPCC report. And yet our addiction to growth, to the status quo means that when it comes to personal responsibility, we turned a blind eye to it all. I see the new nomads as a clear manifesto for the way that we should look at the world, a way of helping us all to reflect on whether we've been knowingly blinded or have blinded others through our views. Because I, I, I believe we've become addicted to carbon and to uh, growth and to extraction, domination and to othering and to certain narratives 
I, d- I don't want to blame the people at the top of the pyramid for being the blind who lead the blind because they're blind. They're addicts. You know, you, being angry at an addict for being an addict and behaving like a douchebag is, is like being angry at someone for having diabetes. Doesn't make sense. These people are just addicts and, and our addiction issues, contrary to, to what we think, we tend to think and, and what ex- expressions like the Anthropocene uh, convey, I think are much older than we think from a thermodynamic perspective. So you, you mentioned growth. I, I just think it, it's worth just taking a, a step back just to say that, you know, like right now, if you listen to the radio or TV, et cetera, half the people are talking about how ways that we can reach or, or, or hope for green growth. You know, that, that's the new oxymoron of our time, but it's an oxymoron. Human produced green growth is a fantasy. There's, you know, there's more and more literature um, and research that shows that what we have is communicating vessels, you know, that like we, we managed to get greener here, but it's at the cost of less green here. You know, when you hear about the municipality of Copenhagen saying we're going to be the first carbon neutral city in the world. I just want to say, well, maybe you should just look at Greenland and how Greenland, your former colony, is managing its um, garbage. And they're not doing a very good job at it because they have no money to do it. So this idea that we can become green in the UK by exporting our carbon emissions to somewhere else as if it was meaningful, that that's the insanity of our time. So. We don't know how to grow without creating more carbon emissions. We don't know how to do it. And we're probably quite far from being able to do it. And yet we pretend that we are. Is it because as humans, we are our default response is to try and treat everything as a problem that can be solved rather than acknowledging that actually the impacts of what we've done are now priced in permanently and we will have to in some way live with that. We don't like that, do we? We want to try and solve everything because we want to try and control it. Is that fair? Yeah, I think there's a lot of that going on. There's a good case to be made that our growth problem is not 300 years old and coming from the Industrial Revolution, but rather coming from sometime between 10,000 years ago and 3,000 years ago or a bit less when, when agriculture became, you know, the agricultural revolution uh, took place in many different parts of the world around the same time. Because that, that's the first, from a thermodynamic perspective, that's the real break of life on Earth. That's the moment when we start to concentrate carbon into grain. And what happens then, of course, is that we uh, are able to stock grain, we're uh, able to raise armies and feed them with the grain, we can levy grain from peasants, and we can so that you so suddenly you have a need for slaves, you have a need for soldiers, you have a need for you have classes, you have or justification for classes, etc, etc. But to come back to your point about problems, even 
the huge, you know, the, the community, the people who, who are the best intentioned really out there about how to respond to the climate crisis, there is this instinctive solutionism. Let's just put our heads together and we can solve this. Let's engineer the response to climate change as if it weren't about fundamentally about what we believe in. Uh, I think what we're discovering with the pandemic is that the way we see the world, the way we understand knowledge, the, the way we respect what we don't understand has a huge impact on the way we behave. We love to think of ourselves as a very science and reason-based civilization. But when the scientists tell us you're committing suicide, you know, you're, you're creating a world that your children are not going to like at all, which is going to be really very violent, very difficult. Do we change based on that science? No, we don't. But I don't think we should be angry, but we should question this fantastical notion that humans use reason to change their behavior, to decide how to act. Humans use reason to rationalize their behavior, not to change it. What's happening, and, and, and one of the points that I try to make in, in the book is that something happened to our worldview when we went from being overwhelmingly nomadic creatures to being overwhelmingly sedentary creatures. There was a separation between humans that happened, and there was a separation between humans and the rest of what we call so clumsily nature, as if we weren't part of it. And this separation today, it's, it's killing us. In a way, I think it's, it's really apparent that we don't, um, we think we're not part of nature. That's why we're letting it go to shit. And, we're, and this is suicide. This is not us watching the world go to shit. This is us going to shit. You talked about problems. I, I think like the, my experience as an addict has really helped me understand the difference between a problem and a predicament. A problem has a solution. It, it might be a very difficult problem to solve, but it can be solved. A predicament is something that is never solved. There's no solution. Predicament you have to live with. You can, you can respond to it in a more or less healthy way, in a more or less toxic way, but you're never done with it. And that's what addiction is. I'm never done with my addiction. I haven't had a drink or a drug or, a, you know, for, for, for quite a long time, but I'm still an addict. I'm really in danger the second I start thinking I'm not an addict. And so what I get is a daily reprieve from my disease. And this culture of solutionism, this culture of, okay, problem, problem solved, it's very unhelpful for the kind of, you know, these things, these myriad crises that we're facing, they're not problems, they're predicaments. So inequality, our incapacity to stop wanting more, our the consumerism, the, um, the desire for childish narratives about how we're good, you know, and, and uh, how um, I live the way I live in Europe 
And this has nothing to do with the fact that some people in Bangladesh or Ethiopia live in a way that I would find even a day in their shoes completely unbearable. But that's sort of tough luck. The two have nothing to do with each other. That, that is a fantasy. Our, our, what we call normal is predicated on the vast majority of humans living in a way that we would consider slavery. I'll give you a very simple example of a fantastical narrative that's always fascinated and angered me. I have come across people who have turned their noses up at my lack of ownership of a reusable coffee cup as a very basic example you need to have a keep cup you can't keep you know you can't keep using all of this cardboard we hold coffee culture up as being something that is great for the world but we never examine the notion that the coffee itself has traveled several thousand miles to get to us and our reusable cups i mean it's just it we are blindly ignoring the narrative. I've always found that absolutely fascinating. There is such a hypocrisy in in behavior like that. And that's not the most shocking thing to me, Felix. The most shocking thing is not what people say, but the fact that they think their behavior is in some way normal and acceptable. I, I understand your dismay. But again, like, for me, you're dismayed because you don't see that they're they're ill. <laughs> this is not people being jackasses. It's people being sick. And, you know, I have, a, I have a friend. I think it was at the, I wasn't there, but it's been, the story's been told to me who at the first uh, Dark Mountain gathering uh, a few years ago, I think it was the, the late 2000s, people were talking about collapse already. You know, and they meant they meant collapse in the UK, you know, societal collapse in Western civilizations. And and this guy who, who will stay anonymous said, what you guys keep yakking about calling it collapse is the way the people who pick your coffee beans live. And uh, I, I think, you know, we're what we need, I think, right now is to snap out of our bullshit stories, um, which is really difficult. I mean, I, I'm here pontificating about all this stuff. You know, I, I, uh, I live in the Southeast Aegean in Greece. Uh, I have a four-year-old, soon-to-be four-year-old daughter who lives in Stockholm. I take my carbon footprint is an absolute disaster. So I, d I don't have um, lessons to give anyone. To the contrary, I'm probably, I have a worse carbon footprint than the vast majority of people I talk to. And I don't think awareness gets us that far. Awareness doesn't really help you with addiction. You know, I, I, there came a point uh, where I became acutely aware that snorting copious amounts of white powder was not good for my relation with myself. It wasn't good for my relation with my kids, or back then it was my kid. It wasn't good for my relationship with my partners, my loved ones. It wasn't good for my career. Did all that awareness allow me to stop sniffing cocaine? In no way whatsoever. So I needed to come to my knees. I needed to be brought to my rock bottom.
And I think what's happening right now is that the only thing that changes human behavior meaningfully and in a lasting way is pain. That's what I experienced personally. It's, it's when it became, when the pain became so abominable that I knew I couldn't, you know, I couldn't continue. It was either death or I'd, I had to try something drastic. That's when I, I was able to go into rehab and to, and to get recovered uh, one day at a time. It's a bit, it's a bit the same thing right now that we're faced. The, and the problem with the culture of sustainability and engineering climate solutions is that it's a culture that doesn't allow us to hit rock bottom. It's a culture that tries to preserve a consensus and a, a lifestyle that numbs the pain when actually that is not going to get us where we need to go. And, uh, that, you know, it's easier said than done. You know, some people are in such extraordinary pain right now that telling them you need more pain, you know, it sounds like sadistic and crazy. So I, I'm not, I'm not saying that individual people need to go through more pain, but I think it's going to take as a culture, we're going to need to reckon with, with a, a lot more pain before meaningful change, I think, can happen. Well, on that note, um, it was a pleasure both reading the book and talking to you. We wish you lots of success with it and with the Black Elephant podcast. Felix, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Felix for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learned? You can only learn so much in your own bubble of comfort and knowledge. It's not until you travel, even if that's just through literature, that you start to see the world and its inhabitants for what they truly are. There's no such thing as travel without education. For Felix, the hidden value of living in a country where he doesn't speak the language means that he's freed from the daily conversation that busies and distracts the mind. Removing the noise from your life allows you to focus on the things that matter, be it personal growth or perhaps writing that book. Moving from rural life to the high-flying world of city business is a story of supposed success told time and again, but as the world changes, as extreme weather events showcase just how far from nature we've strayed, we need to step back and revisit our concept of success. Consider reversing that journey for your own character, dare to challenge their narrative. Being set in our ways, being hypocritical or contradicting our own beliefs is not necessarily a personality flaw. It's an illness. Felix says that we're sick, that we're addicts. We're addicted to our way of life and we use reason to rationalise our behaviour rather than to change it. It's hard to grasp the concept of that addiction because it's not as clear-cut as drug or alcohol abuse. How might you use that in your next piece of work? Challenge the narrative you're presented with and make sure you understand it. Discover how others see the world and let a world of diverse perspectives flow through your writing. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Next week, we'll be more closely examining the topic of addiction and how you can apply what we've learnt from Felix to your writing. 
Let me know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode by sending an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. In the meantime, give us a like and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.